There was, uh, while I was praying, I just was reminded of um, a sermon I've read uh, by Charles, by John Wesley, the great evangelist, English evangelist. And he wrote a sermon called um, Almost Saved, and I'm not going to go into the details of it. But basically the, the message is that the gospel, if it's really received, should, have, should change you. It should have an effect on you. So that if you've been saved 25 years and you really haven't changed, you may need to examine your heart and find out what's happened. The good news is as long as you're still breathing, you can do it. Praise God. The gospel ought to change us. It ought to have an effect on us that, that can be seen by others. And so we're talking now um, about, this is a, a series that we've been doing uh, about but in some liturgical churches is called Advent, which means the coming. So we're preparing ourselves by this series of messages for, for next Sunday, for the coming of our Lord, for what Christmas is really, really all about. And so the title of this series, we'll go to John chapter 3, uh, verse John, John, famous verse John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. What we're talking about is those first few words says, for God so loved the world that He gave. And we've said the word so is so important because it changes the impact of this verse from being a historical statement of something that happened, God gave His Son, to showing us this statement of what God did tells us how much God loves us. It tells us something about God. For God so loved the world, and we saw that He didn't just love the church, He didn't just love you and me, He loves everyone. Everyone that's ever existed, the vilest sinner that's ever lived, He so loved them. And look, and this is what we wanted to get to, He so loved the world that, see He couldn't, He didn't just so love the world. This kind of love with which God loves us, this agape love, that's the Greek word, which means a self-sacrificial love. We spent a whole Sunday talking about that. It's a love that's not based on somebody that's lovable. It's a love based on the nature of the person that has that love. They can't, God cannot help but love because He is love and He is this kind of love. And we saw that because of this love, because of the love that God has for the world, He had to do something. And what He had to do was give. And I shared with you last week, perhaps the most important word in the Bible isn't love or faith. They're very important, but it's gave. God so loved the world. Because He could have sat in heaven and said, I love you all. I know you're a bunch of turkeys and you're really in bad shape, but I really love you, brother. And that's so often what we as Christians do. We come to church and say, I love you. How are you doing? Well, I'm having... Oh, I'm glad to see you. And we just don't listen. We don't get involved. We just... We, we care from a distance. But aren't you glad God didn't just care from a distance? This kind of love compelled God to do something. You know, that the teaching is out there, and I was raised with this teaching, that the reason Jesus healed people, the reason Jesus did His miracles, was to prove He was the Son of God. That's interesting, because Jesus didn't seem to understand that. I guess He didn't go to those Bible schools or those theological cemetery, I mean seminaries. Is, is he, because Jesus told the people that He so often did miracles for, don't go tell anybody. So if he's trying to promote himself, he did a lousy job of it. His biggest problem was crowd control. That when the word, word got out of what the miracles were, the crowds came from all over and he couldn't go. There's one place he said he couldn't go where he wanted to go because of the crowds that were following him. And they were hungry for miracles because they didn't have the alternatives that we have today. And so it says, no, he was moved with compassion. And God was so moved with compassion that he gave. 
And what did He give? He gave His only begotten Son that who would ever believe in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. Let's go to John chapter 1 because this is the Christmas story from God's side. We've been looking at God's gift. What Christmas is about, God's gift to us and our response is that's why we give to others. In the beginning was the Word. The beginning is before the creation of everything. Was the Word. That's the full expression of God. This is the second person of the Godhead. The person that's the full expression of God's character, God's nature, and God's will. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 2. He was in the beginning with God. So now we know that this Word, this full expression of Him, is is a person. Verse 3. All things were made through Him, And without Him, nothing that was made, was made. Stop there. That goes on. We don't have the verse up there. It goes on to say, And He came unto His own, the ones He made, and they didn't recognize Him or know Him. Now let's go to John 1, 14, verse 14. And this is what Christmas is all about. Chapter 1, verse 14. Should be your next one. And it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt the Word. This person of God... And this is what we talked about last time. God took on flesh. And that's hard for us to grasp the enormity of that because that's all we've ever known. We've only ever worn flesh. I know last week was kind of a snow day and some of you weren't able to get here. But the message was wrapped in flesh. God sent a gift to the earth not wrapped in fancy bows and beautiful gold ribbons as we often wrap presents, but God sent the greatest gift ever given wrapped in the humblest wrapping possible, human flesh. And we talked about the incarnation, that God literally became a man. He didn't give up who He was as God, but He became a man. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we could now behold His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and full of truth. So we've talked about that. And so let's go to um, uh, Philippians chapter 2. This is where we're going to pick up today. The enormity of what He did. The enormity of what He did. Philippians 2 verse 5. Let this mind be in you. So now what Paul's saying is, based on what God did for us, this is the way we ought to think. So Christmas isn't just a time to sit and get filled up with what God's done for us. Because when it really impacts you, what God's done for us, we begin to look at ourselves and say, what should we do as a result of that? So he's saying, let this mind be in you. And he's going to use Jesus as an example. Let this mind, this way of thinking be in you that was also in Christ Jesus. Because this is not the way the world thinks. The Bible says in Romans chapter 12... It says, I beseech you by the mercies of God. I did a a series, I've got a whole teaching on the renewing your mind. And the first 11 chapters describe what God's mercy has done for us, of Romans. And then chapter 12 begins, I beseech you because of the mercy God shown to you, you ought to do two things. First of all, present your bodies a living sacrifice, which is your reasonable service. And the next thing is to be transformed, to be changed by the renewing of your mind. And so as we renew our mind and begin to think about who we are and what God's done for us and who God is in His terms and not the way the world thinks, that begins to bring a change about us. And this is what he's saying here. The next verse, please. 
who being, this is, that, this is what God did, and this is how we're to think, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. He, what he's saying is that second person of the Godhead, the Word, was equal with God. Okay? Verse six, 7. But he made himself of no reputation. That's a little hard to grasp. It doesn't just mean he set aside his reputation. That word actually in the Greek means he emptied himself out. It's the kenosis. He emptied out his attributes as God. He emptied out his power to do miracles. He emptied out his wisdom that he, that, that, that he understood everything. And God, God is omniscient. He knows everything. He laid that aside. He laid aside his glory. And I'm not going to go back over because we went through and saw proofs of that. He made himself of no reputation. So God's gift to the earth laid aside all the attributes he had as being God to become one of us. That's astounding. For God so loved the world that he gave. He didn't just hand out a gift from on high. He came to walk among us. And we talked last week. If you weren't here, get that, get that message. It's on podcast. You can get the CDs. Because we talked about how literally he was willing to be conceived in a woman's womb. And grow up the same way you and I grow up. And he submitted to being the birth by the same process you and I were. He submitted. We talked about the fact that Mary had to change his diapers. He was dependent upon his parents. God submitted to that. So he could grow up and, and, and represent us. Astounding how far God was willing to go because He didn't cut any, take any shortcuts. He didn't take any fa- fast tracks. And then He grows, He goes up, and now He begins, He comes, we saw we came to John the Baptist. And John's ministry was to baptize people for repentance of their sins. And Jesus comes to submit to that baptism. And John looks at him because he recognized who he was. He says, whoa, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute, this is wrong. He says, you know, I'm not even worthy to untie your thongs, the, the, the cords on your sandals. He said, you should be baptizing me. And Jesus said, no, 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 no. We must do this to submit to all righteousness. In other words, I'm here to fulfill the law. I'm submitted to the law. So here Jesus, sinless, submitted to a baptism to repentance of sin. Not because he'd sinned, but he submitted to what the requirement of the law was. And then we saw the Spirit of God came and filled him now with the presence of God and led him into the wilderness we looked at last week. And it said he led him into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now you've got God's Son submitting to temptation of the devil. Why? We talked about that last week. He submitted because he was, he was learning obedience. It says, and I think it's Hebrew 5, that Jesus learned obedience by the things... That God had to learn obedience? Yes, because now he's wearing flesh. I don't know if you've ever noticed it, but sometimes my flesh doesn't want to be obedient. It's called a two-year-old. No. No. They discover they can find a two-letter word. No. And they're very good at speaking it. No. I don't want to. Jesus now is wearing flesh that's capable of temptation, and He has to go overcome that flesh. What an incredible submission. And we saw that because he went through it, he was then came back in the power of the Holy Spirit. In the power of the Holy Spirit. 
So that's where we ended last time, and today we're going to go in a little different direction. Put a Philippians 2.7 back up there again. He made himself of no reputation. Now look at what he did. He took the form of a bondservant, coming in the likeness of men. That doesn't mean he wasn't a man, he just now looked like one. He took the form of a bondservant. This is God coming to the earth to walk among us. Didn't come with royal robes of splendor. By the way, when he comes back, he's not coming like this. He says the world's going to recognize him when he comes back. And some are going to say, oh my. But when he came the first time, he came as a servant. When he comes again, he's coming as a king. As a bond servant. Now, bond servant's an interesting thing. Because a bond servant is somebody in, in, in the days of slavery, uh, in all, all parts of the world, people were born into slavery. But a bond servant chooses to enter into service. And usually to satisfy a debt. A lot of times back in the, when in this nation was being birthed, people wanting to come from Europe here didn't have the fare. So they would go to a wealthy merchant and say, if you pay my fare, I'll serve you for five years or seven years. So they entered into a contract, a bond, to be a servant. So a bond servant refers to somebody that chose to enter into servitude. Paul refers to himself as a bond servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. That servitude was not forced on him. He chose to enter it. Jesus chose to become a servant. Jesus chose to become a servant. So what we're going to look at today is God's gift to us came to serve. And the title of today's message is Given to Serve. Now we're, next week is Christmas. A week from tomorrow is Christmas. And I don't know whether your practice is to open presents Christmas Eve or presents Christmas morning. Maybe your practice is not to have presents. But, but, but when gifts are given, they're given to be enjoyed and to be used. In fact, I've had relatives that, you know, <laughs> the old story, you know, you've got a relative, Aunt so-and-so, Aunt Bertha, you know, who gave you all these ties or sweaters, and then Aunt Bertha comes to visit you. And now you go rooting through the closet, where are those sweaters? Because I went Aunt Bertha, I think I wear the sweater she gave me that's so ugly I wouldn't be seen in public with it. And so we, went on, we want Aunt Bertha to know that I'm using the sweater you gave me. So a gift is given for the purpose of being used, not worshipped. A gift is given for a purpose, and it's given to be used for that purpose, and especially so. So let's go to Matthew chapter 20. Oh, let's ask this question while we're turning. If a, if a bond servant is somebody that chooses to serve to satisfy a debt, how could Jesus be a bond servant? Because Jesus came to serve to satisfy our debt. He took our debt 
to God the Father for our rebellion and sin. He took our debt upon Himself and served out the price to satisfy the claim of that debt. I want to go over that again because that's so important. Jesus came as a bond servant. A bond servant is someone that chooses to submit to somebody else to be their servant and to be the, them to be their master. And they do it because there's a debt to satisfy a debt. In this case, it wasn't a debt that Jesus owed. It was a debt that all mankind owed, including you and me. And so He came to become a servant to satisfy a debt that was your debt and my debt, so that in His service, He would fulfill and pay off that debt so we could be free. All right. Matthew chapter 20. Now we're going to begin to take it out of God's realm. What We've been looking at this, this whole series from God's perspective, what God did. Now we're going to come down among the disciples and we're going to identify with them and we're going to look at what this means to us. So Matthew chapter 20. I love it. The disciples are so real. We're going to pick up in verse 20. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons, I love that, came to him with her son. Now Luke's account of this leaves mom out of it. But isn't this just like some moms? She's got her boys, James and John. These are the sons of Zebedee. Two of Jesus' inner circle, Peter, James, and John. And mom wants to make sure her boys are promoted. So mom somehow is in this group, and I, and I think they're walking along somewhere. The mother... This is, the, this, is not, this is not a compliment to James and John. The mother of Zebedee's sons came to him with her sons. Now look at the issue. Now we're talking about Jesus came to submit and to serve. Kneeling down, asking something from him. Oh, this looks good. All right, verse 21. And he said to her, What do you wish? And she said to him, Grant that these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right hand and the other on your left, in your kingdom. Stay there a second. Now in a royal court, the positions were very significant. Because in a royal court, the second in command sat on the right hand of the king. Now my question has always been, she's got these two boys, James and John, which one does she want to sit on the right hand? But she didn't get that far. Verse 22. And Jesus answered and said to him, you do not know what you've asked. Oh, this is significant. Because we look, we look at ministry, we look at doing things for God in terms of the title and the prestige that goes with it. So these two boys of her are part of this circle of 12 disciples. There was a larger group of 70. And even out of this 12, there were three that had a closer relationship with Jesus because often when he would go in something special, he'd leave the other nine behind and take the three with him. 
when he went to Jairus' house to raise his daughter from the dead, at first he had all 12 of them with him, and when he found that she was dead, he left the other nine behind and took Peter, James, and John with him. When he went to the mountain and was transfigured, Peter, James, and John were with him. So she already knows these guys are in the inner group. And now she wants to push him a little higher, and she's saying to him, you know, when you get in your kingdom, the, the next place of honor is next to you. So, so would you grant this one request for me? And he's saying, you don't know what you ask. There may be some of you out there this morning that say, boy, if I could just get into that position, if I could just get that promotion, if I could just, get a, if I could just be a pastor, if I could just be something you have an ambition for, you may not know what you're asking for. Don't you? You do not know what you ask. Because here's the question. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? Now what's the cup? The cup is what he's about to go through. He's now, not, he's now changing the subject from authority to responsibility. In the world we love authority because authority means I can boss people around. But I, there's a course that I wrote uh, that we use here for spiritual authority, which we, we, we're new again. Uh, and the whole principle is that in the kingdom of God, authority is only given as a tool to carry out your responsibility. So if you've been given authority, you better look because you've got a responsibility you're going to be accountable for. And so he's saying, wait a minute, it's not the authority that they have, it's the responsibility. And because of the high authority I have, I've been given a responsibility to go lower than anybody else. You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink of the cup? Are you able to bear the responsibility? Are you able to bear the responsibility, the service that I'm about to go through for you? And be baptized with the baptism I'm about to go through, be baptized with. And look what they said. Yeah. Sure we're able. They have no clue what they're talking about. Because when he goes through what he's talking about, they all flee, except one. God's so gracious because we get so confident in ourselves. God, give me that to do. Lord, I want to do great things for you. And we have no idea what that's going to cost. We sing, you know, all for Jesus I surrender. We sing all these songs about serving Him and loving Him and following Him, having no clue what that's ultimately going to mean. But he's gracious. He said, We're able. Verse 23. And he said, Yeah, you will indeed drink of the cup and be baptized with the baptism. In other words, you're going to go through what I'm going to go through. They still didn't understand it. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it's for those for whom it is prepared by my Father. Look at this. This is the Son of God. And he understands what his limits of his responsibility are. He's saying, I don't have the right to give that to you. There's a higher authority that I'm submitted to. Remember the centurion in, John, in Matthew, chapter, uh, Matthew chapter 8, starting in verse 5? Jesus is walking around. The centurion says, uh, I've got a servant that's lying at home. He's, he's suffering terribly. And Jesus said, I'll come. And Jesus said, no, 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 no. You don't need to come. I wasn't going to ask you to come. You don't need to, because I recognize the, that you're somebody under authority and you're somebody in authority. He recognized that Jesus was somebody under authority. 
And Jesus, I haven't seen such great faith in all. See, authority, how you respond to authority and how you respond to God are, are, are intertwined. Faith and authority are two sides of the same coin. We like faith. We don't like authority. But you can't have one without the other. We don't have time to get into that this morning. It's not mine to give, but it's from prepared to Him by my Father. Keep going. Verse 24. And when the... Te- oh, this gets even better. That's this, now you got mom over here on her knees trying to promote two of them over the other ten. Well, the other ten hear it. And when the ten heard it, they were greatly displeased with the two brothers. So you've got Jesus' staff having a fight. There's strife on Jesus' staff. And what's the strife over? Who's going to be in the exalted position? James chapter 4 says, You have not because you ask not. And the things you've asked for you don't have because you're trying to consume them on your own pleasure. You're trying to satisfy your pleasures. You're trying to promote yourself. They were greatly displeased with the two brothers. Verse 25. And Jesus, now Jesus is going to take the, I love this. This is a great example for leadership. You've got strife on his staff. And what he's going to use is use this as an opportunity to teach. I learned with our children that even when, when I messed up or somebody else messed up, you used it as an opportunity to teach them. So Jesus called them to himself and says, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles, that's people without a covenant with God, lord it over them. This is how the world operates. Those that are authority lord it over those that are under them. Whoever shall not be... Uh, uh, go back to verse 25. Exercise authority over them. Okay, now go to verse 26. Yet it shall not be so among you. In other words, he's saying there's a difference here. The world thinks this way. Remember, have this mind in you, which also is in Christ Jesus, who although he was in a form of God where he did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, he emptied himself. He said, this is not so among you, but whoever desires to be great among you, let him be your servant. Whoever desires to be great among you, let him be your servant. That clock's not working, so if you want me to end... (laughs) Oh my, I'm way behind now because I was relying on that. I noticed that it hasn't changed. Verse 27. Whoever desires to be first, let him be your slave. We don't like to hear that. Even the mention of slavery brings up memories that are disturbing, and especially in our culture. Verse 28. Just is where I wanted to get to. Just as a son of man, so whoever among you wants to be great, let him be other, the servant of others. Because just as the son of man, God's gift of his son, did not come to be served, but to serve. And how? To give his life a ransom for many. To give his life a ransom for many. Everything God, he did, everything Jesus did in his earthly ministry and in his, in his crucifixion and resurrection, everything Jesus did was God serving man. Everything Jesus did 
was God serving man. His creation, the Lord loves us and love, love, this kind of love, serves. Been quiet here. This kind of love serves, it does not seek to be served. The love of God serves. It does not seek to be served. And the ultimate service was to lay His life down for us. Go with me to Luke chapter 10. Pastor Michael ministered on this Wednesday and did a great job. What does that mean? What does it mean to serve? What does it mean to be a gift? Well, Jesus has this discussion with a lawyer, and the lawyer's trying to justify himself. We're going to pick up in, um, in verse 29. But he, the lawyer, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, Who is my neighbor? And Jesus answered and said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among the thieves, who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, having, leaving him half dead. And now by chance a certain priest came down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by the other side. And likewise a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by to the other side. In both of these cases they saw the man, they saw the man that had been injured. They saw the man that had been beaten up lying by the side of the road. The first was a priest. A priest is a servant. The word minister, the Greek word for minister, the most common Greek word for minister, is a word that means, is a word that means table waiter. I want to be in the ministry. Okay, go wait tables. That's what it means. A table waiter. And when you're in a wonderful restaurant and you're served food and it's so delicious, you say, wow, this is great. That's not a compliment to the waiter. He didn't fix it. That's a compliment to the chef who bought the food, chose the particular piece of meat or fish, and prepared it with their own particular style for you to enjoy. God the Father is the chef. Jesus was a table waiter. And He's trying to teach the disciples. So a Levite comes. A Levite was a member of the, of the tribe of Levi. They were the, they were the, high pri- they were the priestly tribe. So the priest and the Levite, their whole purpose in life is to serve. And now they're walking along, they see this man who's been injured, who's in, obviously in a case of need. They saw him and they said, he's not my responsibility. So they passed to the, they avoided him. He's not my responsibility. Remember the question here that the lawyer's answering, because Jesus said, what are the, you know, he said, he said, what, are the, what, what do I need to do inherit eternal life? He says, you must keep the commandments. And he said, I've kept it from my youth. He said, well, what are these? He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your might, also, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said, that's right. And the lawyer trying to figure out a way around it, trying to figure out the limits of what it means to love your neighbor, says, who's your neighbor? Is my neighbor just the people in these four, first four rows? Because they're not my neighbor over there. So I'm not responsible if there's a need over there, because I'm just responsible for my family. I'm just responsible for the people right around me. 
And, and so what the lawyer's trying to do, which is what lawyers are trained to do, is, all right, define what you mean by neighbor, because that's going to put the limit on my responsibility to love. Because the issue is, love your neighbor as yourself, and the question he says is, well then, okay, what's the limit of that? What, what's the limit of how far I've got to go? Because the limit is, who's my neighbor? Everybody follow me? Okay. So, and he passed by on the other side. So he decided, the priest decided, and the Levite decided, that guy's not my neighbor. You'll see why in a minute. Verse 34. But a certain Samaritan came and journeyed. Now, you've got to understand the full impact of this. You've got to understand what a Samaritan was. A Samaritan, in our terms, would be considered a, 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 a racial outcast. A half-breed. Because when Israel was taken into captivity, and ultimately when Judah was around 500 B.C., around 600 B.C., then, then some of them were left in Jerusalem. Some of them were left here. And the, the Babylonians brought in people of their own kind to take over and to inhabit Jerusalem and Judea. And what happened over a course of years is they began to intermarry. So you had some Jews that intermarried with the Babylonians, which was forbidden under the law, and now their offspring are half Jew and half Gentile. And so they centered around the city of Samaria, which wasn't called that at the time. Samaria and grew up under there. And so to a Jew at this time when Jesus was, the Samaritans were hated. Remember John chapter 4? Jesus is passing through Samaria and there's a woman at the well, a Samaritan woman, and he asks her for water and she says, well, you know, why are you a Jew asking me for a drink? You know, why? I can't believe you're even talking to me because you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan. So Jesus picks a Samaritan to rub it in their no, rub, rub their nose in it. Here's a Samaritan, no covenant with God, an outcast by the Jews. What does he do? As he journeyed, he came where he was. So he saw the same thing. He saw the exact same thing that the ministers saw, and he had compassion. There's the difference. He had the love of God, whereas the ministers didn't. Verse 34. So he went to him. See, this love had to do something. This love could not pass by. This love could not overlook and go to the other side of the street. This love had to do something. And he went to him and he bandaged his wounds and he poured oil and wine, which was what they used for healing. And he sent him on his own animal, put him in his own car, and drove him to the Holiday Inn. And he took care of him. Now, as Pastor Michael described so well Sunday, Wednesday night, this was a major interruption in this guy's life. Verse 35. On the next day, he had to go to work. So he departed, but he took out his American Express card and gave it to the innkeeper and said, You take care of him. Whatever more you spend, it's going to go on my charge account. I will pay you. So he wasn't putting limits on what his love for that man he didn't know would do. The professional ministers put a limit right in the beginning. He's not part of my flock. He's not part of what I'm responsible for. I will repay you. Verse 36. So which of these do you think was a neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? See, Jesus is out lawyering the lawyer. He's answering his questions with questions. So which of these do you think was really a neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And verse 37 is the answer. He said to him, He who showed mercy on him. So what does Jesus say? This is not just a parable. Go 
and do likewise. Go and do likewise. All right. See, love sees needs that others are blind to. God's love for you and me saw a need we were blind to. 2 Corinthians 4, 4 says, Satan blinds the eyes of those that don't believe, lest they should see the light of the gospel, of the glory of gospel that's in the face of Jesus Christ, or something like that at the end. But Satan blinds the eyes of those that don't believe, so they don't see their need. The Pharisees didn't see their need for Christ. That's why the Messiah they were believing for was standing right in front of them and they couldn't see who He was. They were blind. He talks about the blind leaders leading the blind. They were blind because they weren't walking in a love that could recognize and see their own need, let alone the need of others. But God so loved the world that He could see the need and He had to do something. He had to do something and He came He came to serve. He came to serve. He came to serve. All right, so Jesus walked this out with his disciples. He used these examples to teach them. And now we're going to turn to John chapter 13. Jesus is now getting ready to go to the cross. It's the night before. He's about to be arrested. Then he's about to be arrested. And it's the Passover. So he tells his disciples, I've forgotten which ones, he says, go rent a room. You're going to go down there, rent a room for me because we're going to celebrate this feast together the last time until I come back. So they go hire a rented room, and when they get into the room, what they find is, there's a room, there's a table, and their tables were not like our tables. Their tables were lower, so that you kind of reclined at the table. There were tables were lower, and then what would happen is, um, there, in, a, in a household, in a household, if you went to somebody's house, because they wore sandals in those days. They didn't wear sketchers and things like that. They wore sandals, and most roads were not fully paved. And even the paved ones were dusty and dirty. So when you got up in the morning, if you bathed, or you bathed the night before you went to bed, you put your sandals on, and you would walk among the, out in the streets, you'd do your commerce, go visit somebody. And if you went to somebody's house for dinner, you'd come to their door, they would greet you, and, in your, and your feet were dusty. So instead of doing this, they would have a slave that was assigned the job of washing your feet. And it was, it was the most menial task. It was the lowest servant in the household was given this job. So much was so menial that I'm imagining, I've never, I don't know this for sure because I wasn't there, but I imagine it was so menial that if you came in, I came in, we wouldn't even notice what they did. They'd take your sandals off and you know, they'd be washing your feet, you'd be doing this and you'd be doing this while they wash your feet. You're talking to your host and they'd, I don't know if they put them back on or not, but you know, and so this was the lowest menial thing. And here's the problem, this is a rented room. There's no servant assigned. The landlord didn't assign a servant to there. So with that background, we're going to pick up on this story. All right, John chapter 13. Everybody with me so far? Okay, now before, the first one. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that the hour, His hour had come, that He should depart from this world to the Father, knowing that He was about to be crucified. Look at this. Having loved His own who were in the world, He's talking about His love for them now. He loved them to the end, it says in the New King James. That word is telos, telos, which means two things. 
He loved them all the way to the end of His ministry, but it also means He loved them to the limit. We just talked to the Samaritan, and we talked about the Levites. The Levites had a limit on their love. They would only love as long as it didn't inconvenience them. The Samaritan had no limit on his love. Whatever was needed, his love for that man he didn't even know had no limits. He would go to any extent to whatever that man needed. That's what that word means. He loved them to the limit. There was no limit on how far his love for them would go. There was no limit. I want you to sink in. There was no limit on how far his love for them would go. That's the background for what we're about to read. Supper having ended, now this is important, the devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Judas was already decided he was going to betray him, and he opened his heart to Satan. So Judas is one of this group. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into His hands, and had come from the Father and knew He was going back to the Father, rose from supper, laid aside His garments, and took a towel and girded Himself. So there was a basin of water there and a towel because the landlord knew that they needed to have their feet washed. He just didn't provide a servant to do it. So here's the need, is they all have dirty feet. Here's the means to solve that, but nobody among those twelve thought to go do this for themselves or for... So imagine if they were going to go do it for themselves, now they'd really feel bad, because if I'm doing it for myself, what about John, and what about Peter, and what about... So nobody did anything. This is where a lot of the church is. So nobody did anything, because it might require something of me. Jesus came to serve. So he gets up. And I'm sure that Jesus, whenever he moved in a small group, their eyes were on him when he was doing anything that was out of the ordinary expected. Well, let's lead down through it, and I'll go back through it. He rose from supper, verse 4. And he laid aside his garment. He took his outer ephod off, his outer cloak off, and took a towel and wrapped it around himself. And after that, he poured water in a basement, and he began to wash his disciples' feet. The job of the most menial servant. And wiped them with a towel with which he was girded, And he comes to Simon. And Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? Now, if you, in the Greek, what it's literally saying is, Lord, you, my feet wash? So what Peter is saying is there, no, no, no. In fact, you're going to say in a few minutes, no. He said, you're washing my feet? See, Peter was so full of confidence in his love and willing to serve the Lord, he's saying to Jesus, no, no, I should be washing your feet. You shouldn't be washing my feet. And look what Jesus says to him. Jesus answers that, what, what am I doing? What I'm doing, you don't understand now. But you will know after this. In other words, they didn't get it yet. 
Peter says, you shall never wash my feet. Listen to this. This man's telling Jesus you're wrong. You're wrong. You, 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 you shouldn't be doing this. I should be doing this for you. See, Peter had a spiritual pride. Peter was so confident in his commitment to the Lord to serve him that a little later on he says, when Jesus says, everybody's going to deny me and walk away, Peter says, I won't. I'll die with you. What happens? They're all scattered except one. John. John refers, Peter referred to himself as the one who loved Jesus. John refers to himself as the one whom Jesus loved. He's the one that stayed with him to the end. The rest who had a com- com- confidence in their commitment to Jesus bailed out. If, you don't, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. In other words, if you do not let me serve you. See, it takes humility to allow someone to serve you. Some people, it takes humility to serve others. But some, it takes humility to be served. They're, great, well, they're ready to serve, they're ready to give, but to receive takes humility and they're too proud to receive. I don't accept charity. Well, then you're going to go to hell. Because you've got to accept that charity. So what does Peter do? He's got go to the, be out in front, verse 9. So Peter says, Lord, then not my feet only, but my hands and my head. Give me a bath. Verse 10. Jesus said, no, Peter. He who's bathed needs only to have his feet washed. I, won't, I don't have time to get into that this morning. But he was completely clean, but is completely clean. You're clean, but not all of you. Referring to, go ahead, verse 11, referring to Judas. For he knew who would betray him. Therefore he said to him, you are not all clean. Verse 12. So when he'd washed their feet, taken his garments, he sat down and said to them, Do you know what I've done to you? Do you know what I've done? I'm sure there's... I can't imagine what the atmosphere was like in there. They're having this meal together and he's been talking about, you know, he's got a guy, he's been talking about trying to adjust all that. And now, they all knew that their feet weren't washed. I mean, you don't sit at a table with your feet under the table. You lie on the side of a pillow with your feet in somebody else's face. And he gets up and he takes his outer garment off and he, now they know what he's going to do. And I, I can I only imagine that you could have cut that atmosphere with a knife. Some of them are thinking, I should have done that. Some of them are thinking, they're, just, they're, they're frozen. He said, and he washed their feet, he sat down again, he said to them, do you know what I've done to you? Do you understand what I've done? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. But if I then, your Lord and your teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should have done to you, I give you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, 
you are blessed if you do them. This is, Jesus taught a lot of things by parables. This is an acted out parable. He had taught them before when James and John's mother came to them that if you want to be great in the kingdom of heaven, you've got to be a servant in the kingdom. You've got to serve others. And they still didn't get it. So now the greatest example is they know who He is. They know He's the Christ, the Son of the living God. They know He's God. And now He now takes off His outer wrappings. This is literally an acted out parable of what we read in Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 5, when He said, He made Himself of no reputation, taking on the form of a bondservant. Now He's taking His outer garments as the Christ, setting them aside, And now he's going to take on the form of a servant, the lowest menial servant, and wash their feet. And he said, do you understand what I've done? You call me Master and Lord, and I am. But if I, your Master and Lord, have served you with the lowest type of service because I love you, you also should do so with one another. You should also do so for one another. I'm going to ask two of you to take this pulpit and just set it down here for a moment. Because I want to do something. I don't really want to do it. This is something the Lord told me to do. So bear with me a minute. I'm going to ask Pastor Ray to come up here, please. Pastor Michael and Pastor Kurt. My wife was here earlier. I don't know if she was visiting her grandkids or not. Would you gentlemen have a seat? These are the men that serve directly under me. These are the three pastors under me in this church. By God's choice, not mine, I've been placed here as the over-shepherd. I am the highest spiritual authority in the church under Christ. And as I was preparing in, for Christmas and the Lord was taking me through this series, He spoke to me to do something to act out in front of you what Jesus did. And he told me who to have to do this for because these are the men that are serving right under me. Ideally, I should do this for all of you, but that's not practical. And so, again, I don't know where my wife is. It was to do it for her because I'm the authority in the home, but that authority is to serve her My authority in this church is to serve them and through them serve you. So, in that night he took off his outer garment. I'll be right back.
If you would take your shoes off, please. I'm going to start with the associate pastor. How beautiful are the feet of them that bring good news. They deserve to be washed. shoes on, (laughs) unless you don't want to. She's coming? Okay. I told her ahead of time I was going to do this, so she's been... (laughs) You gentlemen can wait there. Jesus said, if I am your Lord and your Master, have done this for you, you go and do likewise. Sometimes we think our positions, or even as a Christian, that's beneath me. Just think of what Jesus could have said was beneath him. His love, love doesn't regard your title. Love doesn't regard, love serves I can't find anywhere in the Bible where it says I have a right to be loved. But from one end of the Bible to the other is I have a responsibility to love others. What you find as you do this, it sets you free. It sets you free. It sets you free to walk in the joy and the freedom. I'm trying to give her time to get in here. Now, it's not easy to let somebody do that for you. They knew I was going to do this. It's not easy to let somebody do that for you. Because you've got to humble yourself and say, I'm going to let somebody do something menial for me that I would rather do for myself. Paul Getter. Husbands. Now, some churches have turned this into a ritual. But we err on the other side. We don't do this very often. It's something that's symbolic. I'll tell you what, you guys are dismissed. (laughs) These guys are great. Can you put this back up for me? Okay, here she comes. I need one of those chairs. I may not be able to go home with her. (laughs) Thank you. 
You want to go away and do it, or do you want to do? <laughs> Judy will take care of you. That's not an easy thing to let somebody do to you. But there's some of you, you're struggling letting Jesus serve you. There's some of you, you're struggling let him, letting Him serve you. And I believe God had me to do this because He's calling us as a church. There's some things that I see, that I see going forward into next year that God's already showing me that He's calling us to do for one another. Because He goes on to say in John 13 down in verse 34, A new commandment I give you. And what's that commandment? That you love one another as I have loved you. See, it'd be easy if you just said love one another. Then I could say love you, brother. Ron, love you. It's good to see you. Always good to see you. But His love washed their feet. His love took their shame and their guilt. His love gave His life up for them. So how does that apply to us? Well, He took our guilt so that we could be forgiven. There's some of you, people have hurt and done things to, and you're refusing to forgive them. You're holding, you're holding on to the hurt and harm they did to you. And the way you have to serve them is by letting them free and bearing, bearing their shame by saying, you did it to me, but I still love you and I'll still forgive you. Because what Jesus went to the cross to pay for were things you and I did to His Father and did to Him. Have you ever taken His name in vain? No. Have you ever used the name Jesus without realizing who He is? That's taking it in vain. When we... So He took our guilt and He died for it. And when you forgive somebody that's actually hurt you and harmed you and you release them from that, there's a part of you that's dying to set them free. So that doesn't mean we've got to go to a cross and be nailed on to it. In some ways that'd be easier because it'd be over once and done with. But Jesus said, take up your cross daily and die for one another, forgiving, letting them go, forgiving them is a part of you dying, saying, yes, they did it to you, yes, they hurt you, but I'm willing to let that part die so that they can be set free because that's what Jesus did for you and for me. And then he goes on to say, verse 35, by this, all will know that you're my disciples by the love that you have for one another. When the world sees the church serving each other, then they're going to know that Jesus is here. When we squabble and we fight, when we point fingers, when we protest and, and call people out in the world names, they don't know what Jesus is like. But Jesus served His own. He loved them to the limit. And that's what you and I are called to do. So God's gift to us of His Son 
was a gift of love and of compassion because God put aside His own hurt, His own disappointment. He put it aside because of what was you and I needed and was willing to pay the ultimate price for that. And now He's called us to do that for one another. I spoke several years ago, and I believe it was by the Spirit, and it's come back to me lately, that every need in this church right now, the answer is already here. Every financial need, every emotional need, every spiritual need, the answer is already here. God's provided it. But we're like those disciples. We sit at the table waiting for somebody else to do it for us. When God's already done it for us, He's waiting on us to do it for one another. In Matthew 25, some of the, one of the most telling verses in the Bible is when Jesus says, he, there's a day of judgment for what we did for others, and He said, when you've done it unto the least of these, brethren, you've done it unto Me. When you've not done it unto the least of these, my brethren, you've not done it unto Me. Jesus takes what we do for one another as if we've done it for Him. Why? Because we're His body. And when we love one another, we're loving His body. When we forgive one another, we're forgiving His body. And it's impossible to love the Lord and be angry at your brother. You can't do both. You can't do both. It's like loving your head but hating your arms. You can't do both. Next year, we're going to talk about membership. We're, going to re we're redoing what membership means here. Based on some scriptural things, we're going to redesign. Or we're doing, I'm already doing it. What membership means here. And it means more than just having gone through a class, standing in front of the church and having a song sung to us. It means being part of one another in a living, vital way. And we're coming into a time when, and I've said this by the Spirit one time, we're coming to a time, I believe, when all we're going to have we can count on is the Lord and one another. The things we've trusted in the world out there are going to fail us. It's you and I together, bound together, that's going to cause us to either succeed or fail, survive or fall. In Hebrews chapter 12, and I'll end with this, it says, Forsake not together the assembling of the brethren. Forsake it not. And that doesn't mean just show up in church. It means not to forsake each other. All the more as you see is coming at hand. All the more as you see is coming at hand. So let's pray. Father, I pray today, this morning, that you would take what we've done here, what's been said, and by your Spirit you would birth it into our hearts. Father, may we take what we've read and what we've seen and may your Spirit begin to apply it into our lives because Jesus said you're blessed not because you've seen it or heard it, you're blessed because you do it. As we go into this week, this week preparing for Christmas, Lord, may we become sensitive and aware of the people that are around us, that are our neighbors that we may not recognize as our neighbors. And may the compassion of your love for them stir in us that we reach out to touch them. And we thank you for it, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we...